Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to Philemon. It's just after Titus and before Hebrews. It's very easy to miss because it is just 25 verses. Paul's letter to Philemon. Before we hear Philemon 1, verses 1 through 7 read, let us go again to our God, humbly asking for his help. Our God, in your light do we see light. Help us, we pray, to see the light of the gospel, the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Philemon, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, sometime last month, I was visiting with a family that had been here for a little while, had been here only for the month of October, at this time anyways, and somebody asked the question, essentially, when are you going to preach the Bible? (laughs) Uh, That is to say, when are you going to go chapter by chapter? Do you go chapter by chapter, verse by verse? And the answer is, yes, I do. But there are two months out of the year in this church that historically we have reserved for a special series, and that's the month of October, last week month, we went through Reformationologies. We looked at five theologies, five sections of theology from a Reformed perspective. And then there's late November or in December, and that's the Advent series. And so I knew I had three weeks, because the fourth Sunday of, uh, of this month I am taking off. I knew I had three weeks to fit a book in there, and so last year I had decided we would go through Philemon, and here we are. So it's a very short book. It's very easy to be done in three sections and three sermons. But it is a book that's easy to forget. It's easy to bypass, especially if you're looking for Paul's other letter to the Hebrews, if that's where you're headed. Many of us go from his letter uh, to Titus on church government, on sound and health of of the church, to his letter on the supremacy of the Son without missing a beat. And by doing so, however, we miss the beat of his heart for sound gospel application to our lives. By doing so, we skip the heartbeat of God, who is the God of reconciliation. And that's what this little letter of 25 verses is all about. Reconciliation. Restoration of relationships. The heart of every book of the Bible is compacted into this beautiful package of 25 verses. We could summarize the overall message of the Bible in this way, that God reconciles sinners to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men. 
And that is what this little letter to Philemon is about. And that is why, that's why, even though this is a very personal letter, that's why this letter is written in the Bible. That's why we have it in Scripture. It is eminently practical for us. We neglect this letter to our relational ruin, and we avail ourselves of it to our restoration. This is our heart's treasure, isn't it? That we have been reconciled to God, by God the Son, by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is our heart's desire for one another, isn't it? That broken relationships would be healed. The road to reconciliation is at times hard and long, for the the speed bumps in our relationships threaten to slow us down, and our past joyful road trips with our church family sometimes are barely seen in the rearview mirror. The road may be long and hard, but not impossible. We just keep trucking along. No more car metaphors. And God shows us the way through Paul's very tender letter, full of love for his brother Philemon and his newborn spiritual son Onesimus. Next week, we will consider the problem between Philemon and Onesimus and how Paul will help to reconcile these two. But here, we follow Paul's lead. How he moves is God's designed way for all of us in all of our relationships. Before addressing the problems or the grievances that we have with one another, and no doubt they come, before we do that, we must recall our shared identity and the common graces that we have from God and with one another. The main point this morning is, remembering whose we are, we can move out in mediation in service to Christ. Look again with me at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So who are we? And whose are we? And the answers to both of these questions are interrelated. We see our identity. You see the identity in this verse. Verse 1, we are prisoners. Paul calls himself a prisoner. Our identity is connected to who the Lord is. The Lord is of us, and the Lord is over us. Who is this Lord? It is Christ Jesus himself. Now, the text, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, can go one or two ways. Sometimes it would be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Others, prisoner for Christ Jesus. We have here the beauty of Greek. It's always beautiful, of course, especially written by the hand of God. But here, this word for can mean of or for in English. And when a strong case can be made for either, it's a clue that Paul means both. A Paul is a prisoner in the possession of Christ Jesus. That is to say, he is enslaved by Christ. But he's also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He is owned by Christ, and so he works willingly for Christ. He belongs to Christ and his occupation, his whole being, all that he is about, is about Christ. And this is a joyful enslavement, to be sure, because there is no better master than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Philemon, though not literally in chains, is enslaved to Christ. 
as all Christians are. This is what Paul says in Romans 6, isn't it? And we are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so, yes, Paul does have in mind his own physical imprisonment. He literally is in chains writing here. Most likely, he's writing from Rome. But most importantly, Paul belongs to Christ. Philemon belongs to Christ. His entire identity is enslavement to Jesus. Why is it important for Philemon to hear from the start of Paul's pen that he is in prison, that Paul is in prison, that Paul is a prisoner? Why is that important? Because his condition, Philemon's condition, or rather Paul's, is not unlike Onesimus' condition. Paul, like Onesimus, is a slave. Onesimus is a slave. Paul is a slave. Philemon, even, is a slave. That word slave is the second word of Paul's letter in the Greek here. And this he repeats in verse 9. He says, I'm an old man, a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. And when he had begotten Onesimus, now a child of God, he says in verse 10 that he had done so in imprisonment, in verse 10. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Most likely when he was in prison in Rome. So these men, all these three men, are all owned by someone. They're all Christ's possession. They are the treasured possession of Jesus Christ, their Lord. Their lives, then, are not their own. And so they follow their master's wise guidance on how to live. And as such, they are co-laborers. They share the common employer, Jesus Christ. We are very familiar with Paul's persevering labor of love, aren't we? How he has given his whole life in service to Christ. How he has been content with whatever trials come his way. If that means he's being beaten, if that means he is shipwrecked, if that means he is, I think, killed and then revived by the Lord's miraculous hand, Lystra, whatever it means, he has given his life to Christ. No one can say that Paul didn't labor for Jesus. And here we are encouraged that Philemon, likewise, has been working very hard in the church. Philemon and his wife, Aphia, have a church in their house, likely led by Archippus, their son, and that church's pastor. So here is a family that is committed to Jesus, that is committed to the church, the bride of Christ. And they're all working in God's kingdom. They're all working under God's guidance. They're all working, submitting themselves to Christ their Lord. Verse 2 says, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, is the word here, soldier, refers specifically to Archippus, and he has a ministry in Colossae. It is this pastoral ministry that Paul exhorts him to fulfill when he writes in Colossians 4, verse 17. Archippus, week in and week out, is ministering to this group that faithfully meets in this house church. And Philemon and Aphia have stuck out their necks by supporting this house church, 
Now, they're not on the battlefront, per se. They're not on the front lines, but they are providing a place of refuge for the saints. They are bringing others in that these might find true spiritual nourishment through the preached word, through the gathering of God's people, that they would continue to fight the good fight. Philemon may never march in the infantry, Athia may never ride in the cavalry, and Archippus may never shoot the artillery, but all of them are in the Lord's army. And a little later in this letter, verse 7, Paul calls Philemon, my brother. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And so joined with his earlier address, beloved fellow worker, we see very clearly how affectionate Paul is towards Philemon. Philemon's affections are very warm towards Philemon. Paul loves Philemon. Perhaps you could say that this letter challenges Paul's other, perhaps most affectionate letter, 2 Corinthians. This is full of love, full of tenderheartedness, full of brotherly affection for Philemon. He loves Philemon dearly. He yearns for a reunion soon, even saying that, Philemon, if you keep praying for my release, I will be released. I know it. He rejoices in their brotherhood. He thanks God that they are both brothers in the Lord. And so Paul will stick to Philemon as a Christian brother should, as a Christian brother does. And because this brotherhood is grounded in a common brotherhood with Christ, our elder brother, if you will, Paul is in this relationship for the long haul, for all eternity even. Christ has tethered them to himself. But not just that. Christ has tethered them to each other by his three-corded bond, never to be broken, with the Father choosing them, with the Son dying for them, and with the, with the Spirit sealing them. Of course, the same is for us, that Christ has tethered us not only to him, but to each other by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As prisoners, as co-laborers in God's field, as soldiers in God's army, as brothers in God's family, they have all been divinely blessed with grace and peace. And so we have the very beginning of this letter, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, dear ones, is no throwaway greeting. There are no throwaway words in the inspired word of God. But you might say that these words of greeting would be more especially felt than other greetings because of what is at stake in this letter. He doesn't want to just say grace to you and peace from God and then let me get to the meat of the letter. In fact, it's a very short letter and Paul has a plea for Philemon, but he waits and waits and waits until almost the very end, as we'll see next week, before he offers this plea, before he appeals to Philemon. He wants grace and peace to front the appeal. 
because he wants a grace-based response from Philemon. He leads here with grace, and he is dependent upon this grace, this grace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this grace of God that is being threatened in this letter. It is this peace from God that has been challenged in the life of Philemon. On a very personal note, Philemon and Onesimus will need to depend upon this grace if there is going to be hope for a reconciliation. On a very personal level, Philemon and Onesimus must rely upon this peace of Christ if there is to be reconciliation for them. And so do you see what Paul has been doing here? He has identified with Philemon and Onesimus, and he has connected all three of them with this grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All three of them receive this grace, this peace. All three of them have received the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And so if their relationship is to be salvageable, it will only be because of this grace, because of this peace. No earthly grace will do, no earthly peace will do, but only the transformative power the grace and peace of God. Grace and peace flow from God's throne of grace and from Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. And so the question for Philemon here is, will he avail himself of this grace? Will he access this peace? Will he go before the throne of God and say, I need this grace, I need this peace because of Onesimus, because of what he has done to me? And the same question is for Onesimus. How will I now relate to my master, having understood the grace and peace from my God? But of course, Philemon and Onesimus are not here. They are in heaven, worshiping the Lord. Perhaps even right now, as we looked at from Hebrews 12 last week. So the questions are not pressing for Philemon and Onesimus. The questions are pressing for you and me today, aren't they? For not just this church, of course, but for every church, for every Christian. Because surely, offenses abound. Surely, there's no shortage of grievances. You just have to wake up and and act. And even if you don't wake up, in your dreams there are offenses, aren't there? Sometimes we might get upset at somebody because of what they did in our dreams. We can't escape being offended. We can't escape grievances. But when we submit to the lordship of our common Christ, then reconciliation is possible. We do well to remember, dear ones, that we are actually all on the same team. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We don't go to different streams for grace and peace. It's not that this section of Christians goes to that area, and that section over there goes to that area over there, and and never the two will meet. No, we go to a common source, our Lord, who loves us all, who loves his own. You and I, dear ones, do not have two lords, but we all serve the same Lord, Jesus Christ. You all, we all, are enslaved by Christ and enslaved for Christ. We are all working in the same kingdom of God. We are all in the Lord's army, one strategically placed in different fields than another, each one at different posts. We all 
are in the same household of God. We're all the family of God if we are in Christ. Yesterday afternoon, I think we were eating Chick-fil-A breakfast. Beautiful. Don't have it a lot, but it is a joy to all of our hearts and bodies, no doubt. That wasn't the point. (laughs) But as I was sitting with my twin boys, Joshua and Caleb, six-year-olds, I don't know, maybe they were just, they really were enjoying that they had Chick-fil-A and they're just sitting around and they said, and one of them said, I wish that the whole city were living in this house. (laughs) That was Joshua. And then I think Caleb then narrowed it down. He's like, well, maybe just our family. And then the wheel started turning. Like, well, if everyone's in this house, we don't have a lot of rooms. If they're going to sleep, there must be beds everywhere. And I think it was Joshua said, well, we're just going to be standing on beds, just walking the house around beds because he wants everybody to be in this house. And the beautiful thing here is we don't have that problem in God's kingdom. Of course, we have separate churches, separate locations, but we're all in God's house. We're all in God's family. And of course, there are plenty Plenty of rooms. I thought that was encouraging, to, that, it, that impulse to have others involved. I am no better than you. And you are no better than each other. We are all the same. We have all been given every holy spiritual blessing from Christ in the heavenly places. And by identifying with Christ, Paul is identifying both here with Philemon and Onesimus, these two at present warring parties. When we identify with the offended, in this case it would be Philemon, reconciliation is possible. When we identify with the offender, in this case Onesimus, reconciliation remains on the table. That is to say, when we recognize that we are together for the sake of truth, and we love one another, and we are in Christ, then reconciliation is possible. There is a a touching story about Machen in Ned Stonehouse's biography on the man. It shows not only his love for the little ones, but also his identification with sinners. During a Christmas celebration, there was a little child named Betsy, and she had been playing with a toy. But soon, she became naughty. Yes, even during Christmas celebrations, children can become naughty. Who knew? She was told by her mother to pack up the toy and put it in another room, to put it away. And as she was making her way to place the toy in another room, she dropped the container on purpose, and all the parts of the toy just scattered far and wide onto the floor. Immediately, Machen got on his knees, and began picking up all the pieces, helping little Betsy. But he was rebuked for this. The mother of Betsy told him not to do that. Stop doing that, she said. You didn't drop it. It wasn't your fault. And he said, but that is exactly why I sympathize with her and want to help her. So frequently in my own life, the troubles that have overcome me have been my own fault. Surely, That resonates with us, doesn't it? We love when we have received this grace from others. Even when it is our own fault, the Lord works forgiveness. The Lord loves us. He gives us grace and peace. 
We all need this humility more and more. We all need to grow in this understanding, this love for his grace and his peace. Now, when we identify with one another, submitted to Christ, we can begin mediation. Consider the heart of the problem for Philemon and Onesimus. Now, we're not going to, as I said, enter into Paul's plea until next week. But here in these first seven verses, he's paving the way. He's setting it up. And he's not manipulating Philemon. He is truly loving his brother. And the problem between Philemon and Onesimus is estrangement. There is a physical estrangement, separation, and there is a relational one. This was not Philemon's doing. The physical separation was not Philemon's doing. It was Onesimus's. Onesimus was the one who fled from Philemon. Onesimus, we know, is a runaway slave, one who would be killed on the spot for such dishonor, for such utter disobedience, leaving his master like he had done. And as we'll see next week, Onesimus likely left with some of the household goods, very valuable things. Now remember, at this point, Onesimus was not a believer. He's in the household of Philemon. He runs away. He takes some of Philemon's goods and finds himself eventually in Rome. But at that time, when he had run away, he was not a believer. So there was a physical estrangement, a physical separation, but it was more than that. It was more than just a, a geographical distance between Philemon and Onesimus. It was relational. We don't know exactly how Philemon treated Onesimus as a master would treat a slave. Surely we, we hope, we, we would pray that Philemon treated Onesimus like Paul exhorts believing masters to treat their slaves, to treat them kindly, to treat them with dignity, with love. At the same time, we don't even know how Onesimus responded to Philemon. Was Onesimus a, a well-behaved servant, slave? Well, at least at this point, he wasn't. Was he a hard-working one? We don't know. Was he responding well to Philemon's orders, and he just eventually had enough? We don't know. But even so, the relationship between a believing master and an unbelieving slave will always be strained. There will always be that relational distance. Because they don't have the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, in common. That's the case for, for everyone who is a believer versus an unbeliever. The righteous or the wicked. There's always that relational strain. You can only go so far because you don't have common Christ. But there was a real offense. There's a real grievance here. Paul is not going to minimize Onesimus' sin here. Is not going to rationalize or wash away the error of Onesimus' ways. It is true that Onesimus now is a fellow brother in the Lord, a beloved saint. But the matter remains, Onesimus didn't earn his freedom through legal means. In the Roman system of, of slavery, there was a way called manumission, literally sent by one's own hand. There was a way to be free. You have to work off you have to work X number of years, and then you can apply for this freedom. And there's no indication that he had done that. He didn't ask Philemon to release him. Or if he had asked, Philemon obviously said, no, I want to keep you here. I want to keep you around. And Onesimus didn't submit to that. 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, if you, he says this to Corinthian slaves, if you can get your freedom, do it. There is his, I don't have time to discuss Paul's view of slavery, okay, but there it is, in a nutshell, it's not that he is for slavery itself. He says, if you can be free, do it. But your identity is not wrapped up in whether you are an earthly slave or not. And so he says, but if not, don't be worried. Submit to the present calling that God has called you. And so there is a real grievance. A slave leaving his master was a huge deal. And what will help Philemon and Onesimus to be reconciled is if Onesimus owned up to what he had done. If Onesimus had admitted his own sin by taking Philemon's goods and running away. And for context, Paul wrote this letter at the same time that he wrote his letter to the Colossians. And so he puts this letter to Philemon in the hand of Onesimus, delivers it to Philemon, that they would have some face time. Can you imagine what that interaction would have been like? Onesimus gets to Philemon. Hey, here's a letter from Paul. You know Paul. You love Paul. He loves you. And he wants, to read, he wants you to read this letter. I'll go sit over there, and then we'll talk after. <laughs> I'm not sure how that, how, if it transpired that way, but imagine something like that. In Colossians 4.9, Paul calls Onesimus a faithful and beloved brother. Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. This is telling. A formerly faithless servant of Philemon's now becomes a faithful servant of Christ. How does this happen? How do you go from formerly useless to useful? It's one word. It's grace. It's God's grace. And first and foremost, it's the grace of conviction of sin. It's that Onesimus would have to realize that he had done wrong. If Philemon is going to hear Paul's plea, which again we'll get to next week, but spoiler alert, it is to receive Onesimus as a brother. If Philemon is going to hear that, Onesimus must repent. He must acknowledge that he had run away with his master's goods, and that was wrong. If he is so struck by his sin against God, his heavenly master, and then Philemon, his earthly master, this admission of sin will pave the way for the two to be reconciled. Dear ones, whenever we are in a conflict, we must humbly open ourselves to this grace of conviction. And we all, we all agree with that, don't we? This is not saying that we must abandon our own convictions. This does not mean that we throw away what, whatever we thought was true. It doesn't mean that we... we um, It means that we make compromises where we can, but not where we can't. It means we admit where we think we can. We want to be faithful to our Lord, first and foremost. 
And that faithfulness also bleeds into our relationships. What it means is that we have to be open to the idea that we have not understood the picture as perfectly as we think we have. It means that we can be wrong. It means that even if you think the offender is 90% culpable, you still have 10%. And you plead with the Lord to identify for you where that 10% is. And you, by the grace of God, humbly confess that to God and to the other. James Durham says, If rivers of tears were running down our cheeks because of the abounding of offenses, there would be much more solid peace in keeping communion with others and much less separating. What is he saying? He's saying that we need this gift of repentance more and more, deeper and deeper. We all do. You do. I do. Every single sinner, saint, needs this gift of repentance every single day. This humility. Oh, would that we would all be struck with this grace more and more in our hearts, that we would have this in our homes, in our church, in our society, that we would understand how abundantly we have offended the thrice holy God. And he is still tenderhearted, compassionate toward us, forgiving us because of what he has done in Christ. And would that we identify areas where we have offended others and acknowledge those. We all need this. We saw the heart of the problem, but we need to see the heart of Paul here. And you know what it said? You know how people, what they say? It takes two to tango. There's no tango here, but there is the dance of reconciliation, if you will. Sorry, that was cheesy. But it won't be enough for Onesimus to admit his sin. That's Onesimus' responsibility. That's his doing. He must admit his sin. But that's only going halfway. Philemon will need to do something as well. Philemon will need to forgive Onesimus of Onesimus' sin. And so Paul, before making this plea, doesn't twist Philemon's arm. You don't guilt trip people into forgiving or into admitting fault. He's not twisting Philemon's arm, but he is turning his arms to praise, to praise to God. And so he pours out this thankful heart. In verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Paul expresses thankfulness to God for Philemon. He has seen how Philemon has treated the church in his house. He is genuinely thankful to God for Philemon. However this shakes out between Philemon and Onesimus, what remains is Paul is thankful to God for this man. And not just the man, but the man's love and faith and investment. Verse 5, Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So when he remembers Philemon in his prayers, he has particular episodes in mind of when Philemon showed love for Christ, when Philemon showed love for those holy ones, those saints, the beloved. And Philemon is a man of faith. 
one who supports the faith once for all delivered to the saints, one who shares this faith, one who seeks to bolster the faith of those who are worshiping in his house. And he has invested in the lives of these saints. Paul rejoices. Paul is refreshed even, he says, because of what Philemon has done, how Philemon has served Christ. And he knows how effective Philemon's work has been, and he prays for more and more effect, more and more usefulness for the name of Jesus, for the edification of the saints. In other words, he looks at the man. He looks at Philemon, one who is not perfect, one who has not yet arrived in the Christian life, and one whose view of grace will soon be tested by receiving Onesimus. And what does Paul do? He thanks God for Philemon. What does this mean? But that Paul is thinking about and thanking God for whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent in Philemon because of the grace and peace in him from Jesus Christ. He's majoring on the goods and minoring on the grievances. Let's face it, we don't do that well. What do we do when we are offended? And by we, I'm including myself here. What do we do when we're offended? We focus on how we've been hurt. We focus on the sinfulness of what has happened to us. We focus on how nasty that person is or how wicked that person had acted. We focus on the bad and not on the good, the lovely, the commendable. We need to be more charitable. We need to seek, we need to identify what is good. Why is this person offended? What does he value? Why is she hurt? What are her values? The peace and purity church, commendable, lovely, excellent. The sound proclamation of the gospel, got to have it. This does not mean that we disagree. This doesn't mean that we agree always about how those things work out. But if you know fundamentally that we're all on the same team, that we share similar or same convictions, then we'll be able to reach out in mediation and service to Christ. In offenses, there is real good. There is real loveliness. There are real opportunities for grace. There are real excellencies, there's real justice, there's real uh, true honor, and we must find it. Paul will not ignore the offense, he won't ignore the grievance, but in order to address it, grace, grace must wash over Philemon. Grace from God and peace from Christ must dazzle Philemon's heart anew. Love and appreciation for one another opens the door to reconciliation. If we have stopped being dazzled by grace, restoration of relationship is now off the table. Whatever the relationship is, parent-child, husband-wife, boss-employee, elder-to-elder, deacon-to-deacon, member-to-member, whatever it is, if you have lost sight of grace, guarantee there will not be reconciliation. If we have contempt for one another, 
If we are bitter against God and one another, we are done for. And we are no different from the world. What is that? What is the distinguishing mark between the church and the world? Is it not Jesus? And with Jesus come all the blessings from heaven. With Jesus comes grace. With Jesus comes mercy. With Jesus comes forgiveness. With Jesus comes love and patience and kindness and joy. With Jesus comes everything good. That's what you have. Let that lead the way. All the time. We must have this. And again, by we, I'm including myself. Do not think that I think I have arrived. I know I have not. Reminding ourselves that we are connected to Christ and so connected to each other, we can move out in mediation with one another, still being loyal together as we fight against sin. We must have this perspective, this commitment to one another for the long haul as we carry one another's burdens and haul them to the throne of grace again and again. And there's a beautiful picture of this loyalty in the Hobbit, or the, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, very early on in the first, uh, first installment. I almost said first book. Uh, it's actually not three books. It's more than three books. I'll leave that aside. But as the Hobbits were about to take a shortcut to the mushrooms in the Fellowship of the Ring, Sam's loyalty at the very beginning is challenged. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said. I never mean to. I am going with him. If he climbs to the moon, and if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said. Is this our commitment to one another? Is this the church's loving devotion for one another? Oh, we see that sin. We see that grievance. We see that offense. Is that going to be the thing that tears us apart? It would be if we didn't have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, if we had not love, if we had not loyalty to one another because of what God has done for us in Christ. And just a little later in the story, when Frodo keeps insisting that he's going to journey alone, Pippin pipes up. You do not understand. You must go, and therefore we must go. Mary and I are coming with you. Sam is an excellent fellow and would jump down a dragon's throat to save you. The rest of the quote says something like, if you weren't fumbling over himself. The intent is there. And you know that Sam did more than have the heart to help Frodo. You know that Sam's life was one full of self-sacrifice. And so when our relationships are tested, when the possibility of reconciliation is threatened, are we willing to jump down a dragon's throat to save each other? Sadly, our flesh sometimes shows its draconian ways to devour one another. But we will be willing to do whatever we can when we get deep into our spiritual bones that our Lord took down that old dragon, that ancient serpent, and destroyed the works of the devil. Glory, hallelujah. He entered the depths of that dragon, and he came out crushing that serpent's head. 
He has rescued us from that domain of darkness. He has brought us in to his marvelous kingdom of light. He has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility first between you and your holy God. And then between you and you. Between members and members. Between elders and elders. Between deacons and deacons. Between parents and children. Between spouses. He has poured his grace and love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And now that we have Christ, our peace, reigning in our hearts, let us always pursue reconciliation with one another. We belong to Christ. He is ours, and we are one another's. May grace lead the way for mediation, submitting ourselves to the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious and gracious God, we thank you very much for this tender-hearted letter from Paul to Philemon. We thank you for the truths that we see, that we've seen already in these first seven verses. And we thank you, Lord, that there is more grace, more peace to be found in these letters. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, continue to transform our hearts and our relationships for your glory and our relational good. Amen.